It's a good day. It's a good day to be together and to worship the Lord. Otherwise, you could be out in the rain. Although I think it's starting to clear up, right? You know, I think it's kind of interesting. Um, last week, I, I made a challenge and I said, you know, would you for one week make a commitment? I mean, we all agreed, you know, first that grumbling is a sin. And then would you make a commitment to not grumble for a week? And then we made a commitment to give one another permission to call someone on grumbling. And then I had someone say to me as I came into the service, could we get the service over quickly so that we can start grumbling again? Um, <clears throat> that's not the idea. The idea is to start a habit. And if you've been doing it, you probably recognize how many times it comes up. And then when the person calls you on it, you go, I'm, I'm not grumbling. I'm just stating a reality. Right. Uh, you've heard that. I use it on my wife quite often. Um, uh, but we're, we're called to not grumble. And that's what Paul is moving from in this message from grumbling. And he says, now choose joy. So 17 and 18 of this chapter 2 of Philippians is kind of this transition move from calling people not, to not grumble, but then to begin to serve, to use your life in ways where you are giving your life in serving and loving others in a way that you do it with the spirit of joy. And it would be really a major bummer if the choir sang this great song about how they're giving thanks and how God you know, rescues them every day. And then you go out in the hallway and you just start complaining about where you're not being rescued. Right. But we do that. That's pretty typical of all of us. I do it. You know, I, I, I give a, a really outstanding message or at least an OK message. Um, yeah. <laughs> on, on something. And, and maybe it's joy or serving and, and then walk out and, and do just the opposite because um, we all stumble. There's people stumbling into church and we all end up doing what we maybe don't want to do. So I'm going to ask you a question to begin with, and that is when you think about it, people have loved you and they've touched your life. They've served you in some way. They've they've influenced you at some point. And and I'm going to ask you to think for a second uh, of someone who has and, and let that name come to mind. And it can't be I'm going to ask you not to have a parent or a grandparent. Those are the ones that are most easy. But think for a second, you know, where it may be in your life. It could have been an athletic coach, a piano teacher. Um, it, it, it could have been a college professor, a business mentor, a co-worker, a pastor, youth worker, Sunday school teacher, whatever. Kind of let that float in your mind for a second. OK, I'm going to ask you to stand because you've been sitting for a while. Would you stand? And then if you would have enough boldness, if you would like to, to turn to someone and just mention that name and maybe what that person did. Okay, hopefully I'm going to draw this to a close. We've got a lot of interaction here. You're probably turning and greeting and everything else. But please, if you take a seat for a second. And uh, I want you to think about that. Each of us have been shaped. We've been influenced by the example of someone who has in some way, formed us in our understanding of what it means to serve, to love. Today's scripture verses point this out because what's been happening is Paul has been saying, I would love for you guys to serve one another, to give your, your own preferences, to put them ahead of one another, to begin to move towards not what you like or even what the other person likes, but to what God is moving and doing. 
And he gives this incredibly supreme example of a great servant who is the model of all servants, Jesus Christ, and shares how he who being the nature of God became a servant. And then from that, Paul begins to start sharing about the, the power that's in you that can be released if you choose to to choose joy and, and you and then the, the negative side of that choosing joy is to, is to make commitments not to to not grumble and to not complain to not live in that life and so then as he's made this example of Jesus the supreme one of himself he then gives you two more examples of people who serve and one of them is Timothy who again might be put on a little bit of a stature in some of the people's eyes because he's a kind of a, a person with Paul and on his team but then he gives the example of Epaphroditus which they all know in Philippi because Epaphroditus was sent to be with Paul and they knew ins and outs of his person Epaphroditus and he uses him as an example so it says in scripture but even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith says Paul I am glad and rejoice with all of you so you too should be and this is from last week be glad these are commands be glad rejoice with me choose to take this power that is now in your life due to faith and what Jesus has done by coming in and transforming you, giving you His Holy Spirit, you have within you, no excuses, the resources to begin to live a life of joy and to not have to wait for this message to end so you can grumble again, but to actually begin to live without grumbling and complaining. Not perfectly, but it becomes a characteristic of who you are. So he goes on, he says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon that I may also be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who, shows, who, who will show genuine concern for your welfare. For everyone looks out for their own interests and not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. Because as a son, he's like a son, he says to him. And I hope, therefore, to send him as soon as I see how things go with me and I'm confident, the Lord, that I myself will come soon. But I think it is necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, co-worker, and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. For he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and almost died. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but also on me, to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I am all the more eager to send him, so that when you see him again, you may be glad that I may have less anxiety. So then welcome him in the Lord with great joy and honor people like him, because he almost died for the work of Christ. He risked his life to make up for the help you yourselves could not give me. How do you keep serving and loving and giving yourself to others and influencing others in a spirit of joy? How do you keep that grumbling spirit at bay? That's kind of what we're going to look at today. How do you serve in such a way that you don't grumble and it doesn't become, you know how serving is after a while it can become a chore. It's very easy for things to become mundane. And do you find yourself at times if you started to serve and you're, maybe you're serving in a ministry or you've chosen to pray for and to serve someone who might be at work who's difficult to, to serve and, and you find yourself kind of half-hearted in the commitment you made. How do you keep joy in that? 
How do you keep from just going through the motions? And what I want to share with you is just some tips that you can find in this passage of Scripture, in these verses, when you look at the example both of Paul and then Timothy and the other individual, Epaphroditus. And since, in a sense, we're going to look at these kind of tips to stay joyful as you seek to use your life to touch the life of someone else. Let's pray. Father, would you take these words and, and help us to apply to our lives what you say specifically to our own hearts in unique situations. God, I would ask that you would take away um, distractions, that you would take away walls that we might have in place right now, that you would allow for our hearts to be humble and soft and vulnerable, that we as a people and as individuals would be shaped by your Holy Spirit to become more like Jesus. We pray this in in his, his name. Amen. Well, the first tip I want to share with you when it comes to keeping joy, because, you know, it is difficult. I, I, I think of areas of service that can be really difficult. I think of in the church here, and I'll often say to our pastoral staff, we'll pray for Devon and the maintenance and custodial team, because, you know, there are certain jobs that just feel like you keep doing and picking up and cleaning or whatever, and they can be somewhat thankless. Or you think of those kind of places where people serve and you can kind of all of a sudden, man, how do you, how do you maintain that spirit? I think of working in the nursery and there's been, you know, I just look at our situation in this, even this last year, just the joy that seems to be there and it doesn't have to be. So something's going on. I look at, you know, you may think of your own situation as a, a mom in a home and you know how difficult it is to continue to keep a spirit of joy. How do you do that? Now, obviously, and I'm going to give you some of these tips. There are some house rules. I remember when I was in college in a house and we got to a point where we finally had this meeting. We call them house rules and we set up some relational kind of boundaries and pick up. You got to do this and this and this. So there are certain things that you need to establish. But then there are some things you can only do internally yourself. Because joy is your responsibility and you have the resources to do this. And so the very first thing I encourage you to do is to remember to practice gratefulness. And that is a key thing. Whenever you find in Scripture this idea of joy, you'll find thankfulness is like right on the heels. I've said it before. They're like um, cousins or maybe um, like brothers and sisters. I mean, they, they go together. They live together. They, they, they find themselves together. And, and as you look at Paul and you look at Timothy and you look at Epaphroditus, they were motivated by, by this. They would look back and think of what someone had done for them. And sometimes in those situations, it just really helps to kind of go, you know what, I need, I want to remember, be grateful and say those things are, are, are giving thanks to God. But one of the things you can do is begin to just to do what we did. Who influenced me? And I'm sure they had difficult times. And if it wasn't for their influence, I wouldn't be here. Thank God. I'm hoping as you heard this story, as Jane shared her story, there will be times when she'll be in a situation as she grows and develops and understands her relationship and serving God. She'll look back and she'll, she'll go, thank God for Gio and their family and, and some others in that youth group and Kevin Campbell and others and, and for the fact that they invested in me. So just remember to practice gratefulness. Someone had served them and they were aware of it. When serving becomes a chore and you begin to lose your joy, just stop and begin to think about who invested in you and the difference it's made in your life. 
Paul says this, but even if I am being poured out like a drink offering and a sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. Paul's life was an expression of gratefulness. He, he basically says here in verses 17 and 18 that his sacrifice was really pretty small compared to this incredibly great sacrifice of Jesus. He actually says his is, is like a libation. It's the idea that you would pour, in a sense, the wine over the sacrifice to, to give it more, even some of a pleasing smell. And he's basically saying, my little sacrifice compared to this incredibly great sacrifice of God who gave his, his, his son, the father giving his son. I mean, for what he's done for me, I look back at that and that motivates me again to go, you know what? It's not about what I'm doing here as much as about what's happened in my life. And then it just says, uh, in, in my heart, I go... Thank you. And joy is a possibility. Serving other people can become a chore and obligation whenever we lose perspective. And so at times you just got to remember to gain perspective. And the way to do it is to give thanks. Um, joy comes when you realize the kind of sacrifice and service and the selflessness that someone's done for you. I, I think of Carol, uh, Pastor Carol and Becky right now who are over in Poland and they're serving in, in missions over there. And I can bet you many times as she's walking, even though at times it's struggle, as we know, some of you are aware that she has this operation in her knee and it's been a very difficult and painful time. And there have been people in navigators class and other areas of staff and others and, and prayer teams who have come around and prayed for them, who have invested and in, in, in come in and, and love them and serve them. And you can bet when they're out there right now and it gets difficult at times, they remember the investment that you've made in their life and it gives them joy. And they kind of go, you know what, we can do that for someone else. There's also another thing that I think is really interesting here. It's not only that you need to remember to practice gratefulness, but when you look at what Paul says here and he begins to focus a little bit on Timothy, he, he kind of basically says, remember, it's all about people as well. What you're doing is about people. You're genuinely caring and serving for another person. It's not about a task, a job. It's not about putting some, you know, some kind of event on, some program. It's not about some kind of growth quota. I don't, whatever it is, whatever you're involved in, the bottom line is it's about people. And it's really easy for us to lose our joy when it's all about getting the task done and you get, trying to get the task done and other people aren't maybe coming around to help make it happen. And when you read this, and it's a very interesting thing that Paul does not say, Timothy, thank God for Timothy. He's just this wonderful teacher. Or thank God for Timothy because he's such a devout and holy person. Or thank God for Timothy because he runs really great programs. Whenever I put him in a church, he puts a good program together. He, he basically says this, and here's what he says. Timothy will genuinely care about you. If you look at the next verse, in verse 19, he says, I hope that in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare. He cares about you. Yeah, I, I, I've had opportunity where I've been in places where I've served with with kids who have Down syndrome, you know what I think is really interesting when you serve with them? It's not even about the task. It's all about people. And it's about this happiness and joy because of the way they're just loving people. You ask anyone who has had a child with Down syndrome, they'll just say, you know what they do? They bring me back to this. It's all about relationships. 
And, and what I think is interesting, when you get into those places, you're ready to grumble, you're ready to complain, you're ready to go back to forget the message where I made this commitment, but I'm really, you know what? And you practice gratefulness, and then you begin to say, you know what, it's all about people anyway. The mark of a joyful, good servant is simply this, genuine care. And they want your, your spiritual well-being. Not that they want to make you happy. Your job is not to make other people happy. Your job is to serve Jesus in order to help the spiritual needs of people around you. And at times, that may mean delivering messages they don't even like to hear. But you do it with joy because you know it's about them. and It is about people. Paul speaks of Timothy's genuine care, and I think it's really funny that he does it because in a backhanded way, you see his genuine care all behind it. He says in verse 19, Paul says, I, I want to know your state, your condition. I want to know how you're doing. I care about it. That's one of the things about genuine care. You want to know what's going on. You want to know the condition of your flock, so to speak. You want to be aware. And then he goes on in verse 19, so that I will be cheered or comforted when I hear things are going well. This is the investment he has in people. I want to know what's going on there, and I really look forward so that when I hear, I can be cheered up or comforted by what I hear what's going on. And then he goes on and he says, I'm trying to send you because I care so much. I'm trying to send in verse 20, Timothy, who really cares about you. Paul is looking around Rome for someone he could send who would genuinely be concerned about the welfare of the people back in Philippi. And he can't find any. I mean, what I find is interesting is, is it's really easy to get from people. It's easy for all of us to say, oh, I really care. I really care. But when the, when the rubber meets the road of when you say you really care, it's really about this. Genuine care is about whether you will devote and invest time or energy or in some way, use your abilities to make a difference. Now, I know you can't do it in every situation. Sometimes you can just say you care. But what I find is interesting, that when you really care about something, you invest. It's like he says here, you know, says Paul, his willingness to invest. He says, you know that Timothy has proved himself because as a son with his father, he has served with me. Look at the next part in verse 23. I hope, therefore, to send him as soon as I see how things are going with me. I mean, Paul was looking all around Rome. He could not find one person to, to, who, you know, I'm sure a lot of people said they cared about what the ministry and the thing that Paul was doing, but he couldn't find one person to go. And here is Paul. He's in prison. His life is on the line. And he's willing to say, you know what? It doesn't, it's, it's like almost the father sending his son. He says, I am willing to part with my son Timothy. Because I really care. And I'm really invested. And what I love, and I was going to share this, but I didn't have a chance earlier. I just have to share with you from my heart. I am so thrilled with the investment of so many people here in the sense of the, the, the way you serve, the time that you give, the, the fact that you will give finances. Where we're at right now puts us in a position to actually accomplish some of the things in our vision. We're actually going to be able to give some bonuses to missionaries that we haven't been able to do because of you and your investment, because you care. But when it comes down to it, it's not about the program. It's not about building a big church with all kinds of exciting things going on. It's all about what we saw here. A life is being changed. It's all about people. When you see people's lives touch, it can't help but bring joy. But you can get big, big kind of organizations going and have no joy in it. 
You can show all kinds of good bottom lines, and yet the bottom line that really counts, no matter what God does here, no matter what size, no matter what scope of, a, of a investment and, and, and the ability to impact things happen here, the bottom line will always have to be, are we joyful? Are we serving people? Another thing I just want to is don't forget that this whole life of serving and joy is not something that happens immediately. It takes time. That's the third thing you see here. Uh, they were aware that this was a process of growth. Paul was very much aware this was no overnight deal. Do you know that when Paul came to a place where he had this experience with well, this is kind of funny. When he had this experience with Jesus, he went around trying to prove in his own flesh that Jesus was the Messiah. And he stirred up things so much in Jerusalem that they asked him, the, the disciples, the apostles asked him to leave. It says it in Acts. He's reading. And go. And he does for about 13 years where he begins to grow and the Spirit begins to grow in him does this work. He realizes when he finds Timothy, he goes on his first missionary journey, he finds Timothy. Timothy has a mother who is a believer and a grandmother who is a believer. And, and, his, and Timothy's mom was, was, um, was Jewish and his father was Greek. And, and he, he sees Timothy. Timothy is growing in his relationship with Christ. And so Paul sees this, leaves. He comes back in his second missionary journey. And it's after that he takes Timothy with him. And he takes Timothy with him because the whole purpose of Timothy being with him was that he was going to teach him the secret of learning to be content, of learning to be joyful, learning to serve people, and doing so with a grateful heart. And you just got to remember that when we think of tips with regard to what it means to keep grumbling obey, remember, be easy on yourself in one sense. It takes time, but do something for yourself as well. Find a mentor who really is joyful. I said that and I looked around and I saw about three or four heads going like this. I think that's an incredibly good thing you can do. You see, as you study this whole, this whole concept of, of, of serving, you'll find that, that serving is not something we do not have by habit nor by our nature a desire to, to serve. Now, some have gifts of serving and they do that kind of very well. But the idea of putting aside your interests for the interests of others is, is, is not something that you find often. Jesus stops his followers at different times and he'll, he'll address what I call a me-first attitude. He'll stop them and, and he'll address their need for control, their need for power. He'll address this idea that I need to be number one and I want my interest to be top. And he'll say things like this, the first will be last and the greatest will be the least. And so he calls for this cultivating of a servant's heart. I remember I saw a book title when I was first growing in my faith. And, and it's been a long journey to grow into this whole idea of what it means to really serve with joy. And, and, and I think God is just starting to hammer this out of me, this whole grumbling, and moving into a place where he's beginning to, def, to actually form my character. But one of the things that was helpful is I saw this book title and it said, Disciples are made, not born. So if you're in the first part of this whole, uh, where you're beginning to learn this, I'm going to encourage you to recognize this is a path, this is a, a place of growth. And for some of you, you have been, I call some believers seasoned or tenured. doesn't mean they're mature, it just means they've been in the church a long time. You may be seasoned and tenured, kind of like I have been through periods of my life, where now God is stepping in and saying, now it's time not to be seasoned and tenured, but to be mature. No matter where you're at, I encourage you, if you're just starting out, begin small. Don't, don't try and find these visible places to serve. Don't let your branches get so big in visible service that you don't have the roots sunk down to hold what ministry you're doing. 
Look for mentors and serve in places, you know, serve like greeter and usher, serve in a place where you maybe don't aren't being seen. Serve in none of the ministries that are that we have in many places. Serve someone at work. One of the greatest things you could do where you're at in your neighborhood. Make and say, God, I'm going to learn to love this person and do it joyfully. Because joy is an attitude. It's an inside job. You know, we've been, we've been putting these little green bracelets on and, and the purpose is to really anchor in this truth of joy. It says, be joyful, pray consistently, and then give thanks. But we don't have on here is give thanks because it says this is God's will for you in Christ. And most often when we think about God's will, we usually think about it being out here somewhere. We don't think about it being in here somewhere. God's will for you in Christ is in here. It's joyfulness. It's, it's this constant communication in this prayer, this understanding, this recognition of his presence. And it's a sense of thanksgiving. His will is really pretty clear. A lot of times I go, oh, God, what's your will for me? And I'm looking it out here and he's going, it's right in here. And it needs to be cultivated and it takes time. And then there's another, I just be realistic as well in this whole process. Not only do you need to practice gratefulness, you remember it's people and it's going to take time, but just be realistic. That's what I find so interesting here. Paul was honest about the ups and downs of his life. He, this was not some kind of plastic, fakey kind of joy that Paul was talking about. This was a deep down center joy in his sense of well-being that he is with his father, that Jesus, the good news is that he's on the throne no matter what's happening. This, this Jesus is in control of his life. All he needs to do is, is begin to make the choices of obedience that activate the very resource of the Holy Spirit within him that begin to cause his character to change when his character internally changes. It usually impacts things out here. And if it doesn't, God has a reason for it. What I find is interesting is you read this letter, you can't help but notice that joy stands out. You see it again and again, the words joy. It's marked throughout the letter. Yet as you read Paul's letter, and particularly these verses, you have to look at these verses and see some things that I think are interesting. Paul is incredibly realistic about his life and struggles. Know how real and honest Paul is here. In verses 19 through 24, Paul expresses his disappointment. He's not complaining. He's just saying, here's the facts, folks. No one is taking concern for you as I would like them to. That's just the facts. Verses 25 through 30, Paul tells us about his joy that Epaphroditus had been brought to take care of him his needs, and yet he talks about the struggle it had created as well. Verse 27, Paul was joyful, yet his joy was mixed with sorrow. I just want to tell you, you know, for us, the message of joy is not to say to someone, hey, look at um, when you hear the passing of a relative or when you're going through uh, the, the news of illness. It's not kind of be plastic and happy. There's joy and there's sorrow. But joy is that even in this, God is with me. And that's what Paul seems to say. He says in chapter 4, this is kind of interesting, do not be anxious about anything but in everything. By prayer and petition, give your thanks to God, right? And then he says a few verses before that, I'm eager to send Epaphroditus to you so that when you see him again, you may be glad and I may have less anxiety. How can that be? Which is it, Paul? It's both. Because Paul was realistic. Life happens, as we say. Stuff occurs. We experience sorrow and stress and struggle. We, we struggle. We feel anxiety. We experience sorrow. But we don't have to live there. 
We have the truth of who is in control and we have the choice to begin to release joy with the midst of all the things going on in our life. That's realistic. And so I'm going to share with you, when you start serving people, you, you're, going to, you're going to find people can be really difficult, right? Anybody? You can find senior pastors can be really hard to deal with. And I, believe, I know you don't know that, but that's true. People you work with at work can be, I mean, if you're going to serve with joy, you're going to come against obstacles. You're going to come against things that are really difficult and painful. And and the reality is we're not saying here, don't deal with the realistic nature of it, but recognize that you, as you walk with him in in humble obedience and make commitments, I'm not going to grumble about this, but I'm going to choose to release the resources of God in me. If you don't have that attitude, you're going to trip up and go, this whole Christian life seems so fakey, it's just not real. I can't do it. Oh, yeah, you can. Because you become more of a real person following Jesus than any other person you will follow in this world. He will make you the kind of person He desires for you to be. And I'm going to ask you to remember one last thing, and this is this. What you're doing really matters. When you serve people and you remember to have this grateful spirit and it's realistic and you know it's taking time to build this into your character, what you're doing really matters. Serving joyfully means your heart and eyes are upon something greater than just even the person you're serving. In many ways, it's greater than than the ministry you may be in. It's greater than your preferences and desires. It's greater than what you're trying to get out of it. You have to be focused on something far greater. And those who influence you and did so joyfully, they sacrificed and served something far bigger than themselves. That's what you see with Paul. He was doing this in order to establish in these people the presence of God in their daily life. It's far bigger than anything you can imagine. In one sense, when you think about it, serving is ultimately about dying. It's about saying to yourself again and again, I will die to this in order to, to see this occur. This happens when you diet, you know, whether it's a good thing or a bad thing to diet. But when you say, I'm going to count my calories, and you start to count your calories, you do it because you're looking for this thinner person, right? Or this more healthy person if you're going to exercise. You, you die to certain things in order to see this occur. There's something greater going on than what you see in the moment. So Paul says, my life is being poured out so it can be poured into others. Epaphroditus, if you look at it, at the end of this verse, is said to almost have died. Epaphroditus risked it all. The word risk means to gamble. It's this idea that he gambled with his life in this investment of something far greater than himself. And that was in, in helping to equip Paul in this greater sense of what God was doing. I had a, a friend in a guy's group that I meet with on Tuesday mornings. And he was really taken up with what Peter Kapsner said a few weeks ago at the end of his message when he said, are you willing to die for someone? And he said that just kept ringing in his ears. And as he was going through his life um, and, and he, at work, he heard about a person who he had worked with who was on dialysis, who needed a kidney and, and had been waiting for quite some time. Nothing happened. And he started hearing that message. Well, am I willing to die for this person? And... Um, and then he said, well, I thought about it, and I thought, you know, I don't need two kidneys. And I'm thinking to myself, yeah, don't take that message too seriously. And so he called up. And he asked, you know, could I be a donor for this? And the person said, uh, and he found out that he didn't have the right match. But he was talking about that with another coworker who was kind of going, I can't, really? And he goes, well, wouldn't you, if you had one kidney, want someone to do that for you? And so his coworker called. 
Now, I don't know that where that story's gone from there, but serving matters when you recognize it's something greater than yourself. I'm going to share with you um, one of the greatest speeches of all time. It was Lincoln's Gettysburg Address. And what's so incredible about this great speech was that Lincoln had stood on this battlefield that had been blood-filled. And Edward Everett had just, this famous order from Massachusetts, had just spoke for two hours. They had sung a hymn and people were beginning to disperse. And and Lincoln was just to come up and give a brief closing. And it's just a three-minute speech and it's less than 200 words. But what's incredible about this this speech is here were these tired, worn-out people grieving, standing at this battlefield who had lost sons and who had lost relatives and had seen the carnage. And they're standing there after they just heard all these things. Here is this, this cemetery. And five times in this speech of three minutes, less than 200 words, people stopped and applauded. What he wanted to make clear is that their lives that they had given were not in vain. He says, four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. And I'm sure they started to applaud. Now we are engaged in a great civil war, testing whether that nation or any nation so conceived and so dedicated can long endure. We are, not, we are met on a great battlefield of that war. We have come to dedicate a portion of that field as a final resting place for those who here gave their lives that that nation might live. And I'm sure they broke out in applause. It is altogether fitting and proper that we should do this. But in a larger sense, we cannot dedicate, we cannot consecrate, we cannot hallow this ground. The brave men, living and dead, who struggled here have consecrated it. Far above our power to add or detract. The world will little note nor long remember what we say here, but it can never forget what they did here. It is for us, the living, rather, to be dedicated here to the unfinished work which they who fought here have thus far so nobly advanced. It is rather for us to be here dedicated to the great task remaining before us, that from these honored dead we take increased devotion to that cause for which they gave the last full measure of devotion, that we here highly resolve that these dead shall not have died in vain, and that this nation under God shall have a new birth of freedom, and that government of the people and by the people, and for the people, shall not perish from the earth. And they applauded. And it's no wonder they forced him to stop five times. Because he had lifted in that brief two minutes or so the sense of what really mattered. And people in grief were in joy because they realized All that had happened there was because of something that so great occurred that they would also be dedicated to it. And I think to myself, and I heard the speech and and, and read it, I've been 
looking at this thing called Great Courses, and this is one of the speeches, I, I just think to myself, what you are doing, what we are doing, day in and day out, really matters. It matters because someday someone's going to stand probably in a place, something like this, and, or they're going to be in a, in, a, in a conversation or on coffee, and they're going to say, who has influenced you? And you won't even know it. But don't stop. And don't grumble. And serve with joy. I'm going to ask us to pray. Father, just would you take some of these thoughts and help us to understand how, how incredibly gifted we have been with all that you have done and all that you want to do through us. What a great opportunity for us to do things that really matter day in and day out in the lives of people. We give you thanks in Christ's name. Amen.